Hey there, you're listening to Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. It's a podcast where we talk about life, music, and spirituality. As we get into this, I just want you to know that it's not about getting you to believe what I believe. It's about asking you to ask yourself why you believe what you believe. Well, somehow I've gotten to episode number 13, Unscathed. All right. This is part two with my conversation with Trevor, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear this particular conversation because we went a little bit deeper about some spiritual things, and well, this is Don't Be an Asshole, a spiritual guide. So I'm really hoping that you guys get something out of this. Remember, you can always support this podcast by going to patron.podbean.com forward slash Eric Tom Year. And you can support it monthly, $1 a month, $5 a month, $25 a month, whatever you feel is appropriate so that we can make better content and get these podcasts out to you on a very regular basis. I love doing this and I hope you love listening to it. All right. Now, I can't speak for every ancient text, every religious text, but there's a lot of confusing things in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Old Testament alike. Um, There are some things that, man, when you read it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance. Um, A passage out of Paul's letter to the Romans is a, a key example of that. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 It says this in a modern translation, not like King James. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I'm like, what? Okay. So does that absolve us from our responsibility? I I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that we all have this innate thing inside of us that pushes us to do things that we know isn't exactly the right thing. Um, what I call being an asshole. We're all selfish on the inside. We all want to look out for number one, but the at least the way I think we want to live in a community is looking out for each other, but our own selfish desires keep getting in the way. And one of the things we keep focusing on is chasing our own happiness. What makes me happy? What, what is it that I want? There's this thing called the focusing illusion. It's a cognitive bias that occurs when people place too much importance on one aspect of an event, causing an error in accurately predicting the utility of a future outcome. To illustrate, there was this um, study done where it was a very simple study. They asked a bunch of early 20-somethings two questions. The first, how happy are you? The second, how many dates did you have last month? And there wasn't a noticeable correlation between the answers to the two questions until they switched the order of the questions, which forced people to focus on what they did not have before answering how happy they were. When they asked, how many dates did you go on last month? 
and then asked how happy you are, well, the participants were noticeably less happy after focusing on their lack of romantic encounters. And that's the thing. We spend so much time focusing on what we don't have and what we need to have in order to make us happy when we should just look at our lives and say, I'm pretty freaking lucky. I should be pretty happy with what I have. Now, there's a difference between someone who's always focusing on the negative and being unhappy and someone who genuinely needs help because they have a clinical depression. If that's you, get help. But otherwise, take a look at the bright side occasionally. I know it's a cliche, but it really helps. Focus on God. Focus on your family. Focus on your health. Focus on the things that you do have. And then answer the question, how happy am I? Well, let's go ahead and get into this next conversation with Trevor. All right. You know, speaking of, I was actually a little bit anxious for this whole conversation because I was like, you know, I told you before, I was like, what, why do you want to talk to me? I don't have a lot to share. But then I was sort of thinking about it today and I realized there's a lot of opportunity for us to geek out here. And one thing I wanted to get your take on, well, a couple things I wanted to get your take on was um, first and foremost, uh, I'm just curious, how do you uh, reconcile the idea of a soul with the concept of evolution? That's a great question. Because there are a lot of people in my upbringing and background who believe in a, a literal seven-day creation um, and that, that the earth is 6,000 years old. And I have a hard time asking them how they reconcile the fact that there are dinosaur bones laying around with that. And they, then they talk about like the old earth and then the recreated earth and, and all this stuff. I believe in like what Aristotle called the immovable mover. The, the person, the thing, the entity that began it all. I also believe that the creation story is an allegory for God awakening the soul at some point. I mean, maybe, and I've, I've never heard anybody else say this. This is just my maybe could be something. Maybe Adam was just the first dude that had, that went from being uh, like, Neanderthal. Well, that was a different sort of genus of, of, yeah. of humans, but yeah, yeah but, whatever came before Homo sapiens. Yeah, maybe the Adam was the first person to become awoken to the fact that there's a God. Hmm. First person that looked up in the sky and said, there's got to be more. I don't know. I don't think that that... I think it was an allegory from the Jewish perspective that... God began all things like Aristotle from the Greek perspective said something began all things. I think at some point billions of years ago, this great, huge, humongous God said, let there be light. And the universe at this point is still expanding at the speed of light in all directions. And so that's how, how I believe how powerful the spoken word of God is that it has created at some point in the center of everything is this all-powerful being that said, let there be something, and everything is. It's billions of years old. And my theology about God is that God is actually outside of space and time. So there is no, 
he, he, he can see billions of years from a 360 degree view. And it's like, Oh, that's just, you know, a few moments. That's all happening right now. Right. He's uh, that big blue dude from Watchmen. You know? yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, everything's happening kind of, of Dr. Manhattan. Um, everything's happening kind of at the same time. Not to, you know, all of you conservative people, I'm not really saying God is Dr. Manhattan. Um, <laughs> but I do believe that God sparked creation and that from there, everything that we see has evolved from that. I know the the story is that God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And Technically, so, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I like in podcasts. I actually like that stuff. I like yeah. it when there's some background noise. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Fun. I'm not too. I'm, I'm not too shaken about it. Um, like there, I have not been in a pristine environment yet. So yeah. uh, we've had helicopters. We've had traffic. We've had. Uh, all sorts of things. The only thing I try to keep away from it is like an air conditioning unit that's just completely engulfing the sound. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's pretty much my answer. I believe, I believe in God, and I believe that God created everything, but just not in the way that the Genesis account says it, because I believe that the writers 4,500 years ago were putting together their best effort to explain how big God was. Yeah. Which it's impossible. You know, there's some other other stories I believe are allegories. You know, I don't think Job was a real dude. And I don't think that Noah got every animal. I don't know if there was a flood. I don't know what what happened, but I do believe that there was a righteous man, you know, yeah. in the face of unrighteousness. Yeah. But I still believe it was a story to prove a point. Yeah. Uh, there are some things that I do believe. Since you know, since I crossed the threshold at one point into believing that there is a God, it's not too hard to believe that this God can do miracles. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, if there's really a God out there, then things like walking on water and raising, rising from the dead are not impossible. Yeah. It's uh, funny. We're like, he can create the subatomic particle... But he can't be bothered to like yeah. change this about the universe. Like, yeah. okay, I mean, I get the whole you know laws of nature thing, but yeah. come on, I mean, this guy, this person, this entity created everything. I, I mean, and that's why, since everything is so vast and so big and so wonderful and terrifying at the same time, why would why do I bank everybody else's soul on the fact that I have to be right? Hmm. Yeah. I don't. And which is one of the reasons I couldn't be a pulpit pastor anymore. I, I just couldn't look at people and say, oh yeah, this is, you want, people want, that's why Islam is so attractive to billions of people is there's such strict rules and people need those rules. They need to be told what's right and what's wrong and not have, not have the luxury of questioning whether it's right or wrong yeah so that's why that religion has continued to grow so much yeah well in a way that i see why they defend that so vehemently as well mm -hmm. because it, it it preserves sanity in a lot of ways yeah like i feel like i read a, a piece from stephen pressfield a while ago on his blog he wrote the war of art and going pro and a bunch of other he's also an author like a novelist um but he 
he wrote this whole series on how it's like the conflict in the Middle East is not about oil or any of those things. It's, it's about, or I guess technically it is about those things, mm-hmm. but the main conflict is this ideological cultural conflict because they see the American culture, the Western culture celebrating individualism as this deep threat to the tribal roots that they have cultivated for years and years and years and years and years. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that basically creates this immense safety structure mentally, physically, socially in a tribe. And when you see somebody come along and say, no, your, your tribal thing is bullshit. Every man for himself, go off and make your millions. That's, that's like, why I don't think the American church is because Christianity is supposed to be that way too. tribal. Yeah. Um, Judaism is tribal. Every, everything except for capitalism, you know, everyone talks about, okay. In theology, we talk about, you know, who's whatever version of Jesus you see yourself in is the version of Jesus you think is the true version of Jesus. Because what is that? What do you mean by that? If someone thinks that, um, some people think that, uh, social justice is the most important part of Christianity. And so they see Jesus as a social justice crusader. Got it. Some people think that preaching is the most important part of ministry. So they see that Jesus's biggest part of his ministry was his preaching ministry. Some people think that healing was the most uh, impactful part of Jesus's ministry. So they think they want to be, well, I want to have a healing ministry. I want to lay my hands on people and they're going to get up out of wheelchairs and that nothing, nothing's more powerful than that. That's going to save the world. And, and it's all great, but Jesus was that and that and that and that and that and that and that. And he was all these things. But really, it boiled down to love God, love people, and don't be an asshole. Yeah. You know? I mean, and, so, and that's me reading into it. Because that's my byline. And that's what I want people to be. And so I see Jesus. And so I could be wrong. I don't think I am. Like Monk, you know, I don't know if you've seen the TV show. <laughs> yeah, Monk. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, I really, I really think I'm right. I really hope I'm right, but I could be wrong. I could have missed it all. And I'm, I give people the grace to be wrong because I want them to give me the grace to be wrong. Yeah. Because why beat each other up over something that we, what is faith if it's something that's, if it's not, I don't know. This is what I think. This is what I hope. This is what I feel. And through a lot of study, I've come up with these uh, doctrines. Hopefully, you're not super dogmatic about those doctrines, but I I think theology is super important and doctrines are super important. But man, you got to give people grace to be wrong. Anyway, that's... Amen. That's like a soapbox I've been on for, I don't know, a while now. (laughs) I think that's so important, though. I look at a lot of the problems in the world right now, and it's just a lot of people who are unwilling to be wrong. I actually... There's a story that sort of illustrates this. Uh, I was going to swim practice the other day mm-hmm. and I'm pulling off the 405 onto Culver. Mm-hmm. I'll spare the details, but essentially I almost got into an accident because I'm, I'm, I'm in the right. I know I'm in the right. I have street signs to back me up, but I was making a right from a left lane onto Culver. So I was, I was the outside lane, but I was turning right mm-hmm. and um, street signs back me up. Another car that was next to me was trying to drift over into the other lane as I was turning. Mm-hmm. So they almost ran into me and uh, honked at me and stuff. And I kind of looked at my, I was sort of like, it's like, what, what, what? You're, why are you honking at me? You're trying to drift lanes. There's a solid line on the road right there. You're not yeah. supposed to. 
So he followed me. This guy followed me all the way to the pool, to the, the destination. And I parked. He's got a white Tesla. So he gets out of his car. And I'm getting out of my car. I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, road rage or whatever. He's like, bro, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't turn from that lane. I'm like, yes, I can. And so we go back and forth for about 15, 20 seconds about both being right. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know what? <laughs> We're... <laughs> There's, this isn't going to go anywhere. So I yeah. just went, I just said, you know what, dude? First off, I'm glad we didn't get in an accident. You've got a beautiful car. I wish I had a Model S. I don't, or a Model 3 or whatever he was driving. I was like, I don't, um, but I would be really amped up if if that almost happened to me as well. And I said, I've seen other people have an accident exactly the same way we, we did just now. And I said, next time, what I probably should do is just be aware that the car next to me might try to do what you did. And he was like, he didn't know what to do with that. He just stopped and was like, well, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, next time I guess I could, uh, you know, wait for the car and see if they're going to turn. And I was like, yeah, cool. I was like, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry that almost happened, but I'm glad it didn't. Glad you're okay. Drive safe. And he's like, thanks, man. And he shook my hand. I was like, this guy chased me down to yeah. drill me a new one and ended up shaking my hand and thanking me. And it was all because I was like, you know what, dude, maybe I was wrong. Maybe you were, maybe we were both wrong, but like somebody had to take the lead there or else that was just going to become a a fighting match, you know, a screaming match. Right. And, and it just happens every day here. Yeah. Today, um, a close, uh, friend of mine, single mom going through just horrible, horrible stuff right now. While she's dealing with all this other stuff, she took her kids to the library. One of the kids got out, of the car, opened the car door, and dinged the car next to them. And the lady was there, and the lady was irate. Just irate. Um, and so my friend offered her her insurance, but the lady wouldn't take it. And so she sent her kids into the library. Uh, she was trying to get them to go, but they wouldn't go without her. So she ended up having to go into the library, and this lady was just still screaming and irate. And my friend still was like, hey, I can here. Here's my insurance information. I know I don't need your insurance information. She was just being, and so my friend goes inside with her kids, gets the books that they're trying to get, and then when she comes back out, her her car is all keyed up. No. Yes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And if you've ever seen Pulp Fiction, you know how John Travolta feels about his car getting keyed, <laughs> and it's like, I'm I couldn't believe it. My wife called me like as I was walking in to tell me this and I'm like this people don't be an asshole I mean she tried to make it right yeah I mean my son uh, my middle son opened the car door into somebody's uh, car two or, two or three summers ago and it left a little scratch like the white part of my my pinky nail here like a little bitty scratch and it ended up costing us like five hundred dollars jeez um I eventually just handed, I was just going to pay for it, but they kept trying to screw me around and kept calling me and calling me and calling me. And I'm like, look, I'm, I'm just going to give this to the insurance. Um, insurance will take care of it. Just don't call me again. Right. Cause I was like, Hey, just let me know how much it is. Go get an estimate. And, uh, here's my number. Here's my insurance information. Just, you know, so you can trust that I'm going to pay for this because I thought it had to have been like a touch up job, maybe a hundred bucks. And, now they had to take the whole door off and like redo the whole door. And I'm like, I'm sure. Yeah. So I'm like, wow. I'm just going to hand it over to insurance. And you know, you got to, when you, you got to take responsibility for, for the things that you do. But then people just don't have to be assholes about it. Yeah. What do you, so what do you think the answer is there? 
to what exactly? Like, I try to see, I try to put myself in other people's shoes. So I think about that woman just screaming and then deciding to key the other person's car and driving home and feeling victorious. And I'm trying to think, like, imagine what is going on in her life? What is she not dealing with that this is the, to steal something from uh, our sort of coach and mentor, David H. Lawrence, the 17th, what is, why is that her only, why is that the best option on her menu? Yeah. You know, like what's the, like, what's the answer? Why do we have all of this in the world? Why do we have people that behave this way? And what, what does, what do we need to be, what example do we need to put forward so that we can be a positive force in, in that yeah, I, I don't thing? really know. No, yeah, I mean, you hear people all the time just lose their crap on stuff. Yeah. And the thing is, no matter what your spiritual situation is, we do live in a broken world. People are broken. Our relationships are broken. Our hope in humanity is broken. The way we view things is broken. We need just some hope and understanding. I, I would I almost want to challenge you on the broken thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Why is it not just the way we are? I, I think again from like my spiritual background, there is a a perfection that we're striving towards. Um, and it ha- only happens on the other side of eternity, on the other side of the space-time continuum where the creator lies. And that people, but at the same time, I tell people, don't live your life for some hope on the other side of eternity. Let's, let's try to make this side of eternity that we know exists, that we're 100% sure that I can reach out and I can like, you know, grab your arm and say, damn, those are some nice biceps. But, um, <laughs> and, but I can like grab you. I can shake you by the shoulder and say, we're real. We're here. We're, we're here now. Hmm. Let's make the best of this moment. Let's be the closest, the best that we can be. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it isn't broken. Maybe it, to, to say something's broken would signify that there was something unbroken to begin with. Maybe. And maybe we've never been whole or a version or what we're hoping whole looks like. Uh, Maybe we've never been there before. Maybe nobody in history has ever been anything more than a selfish asshole. Hmm. But in order to make our relationships run smoother, you know, that's what I tell people about what a lasting relationship looks like. My wife and I have been married 20 years. A, a working relationship is when two people who admit that they're assholes get together and say, look, I know you're an asshole. All right. <laughs> let's face it. And I know I'm an asshole and I'm a bigger asshole than you are, but let's just promise like this. This should be like your wedding vows. We're both assholes, but I promise to the best of my ability to not be an asshole to you. In fact, let's team up and be assholes to everybody else. Just not to me, just not to you. At the end of the day, let's talk it out. Try not to, Try not to be an asshole to that one person because it's going to spill out somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so most of us work so hard to not be assholes to strangers and to people we work with that we don't even like and on the road and in all the parts of our life that by the time we get home, then it spills out on the person we're closest to because they can take it. Mm-hmm. And that's why relationships struggle. That's why things seem to fall apart. 
is because we're not protecting the other person as much as we're protecting the stranger on the road that we're trying not to lose our shit on. Hmm. Maybe because it's a matter of access. It's access and we need, we need the release and we feel safest with that person. Right. We're going deep, dude. I love it. Yeah, me too, man. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think about this a lot and I've been meditating every day. Um, for several years now. And I, I find that that is one of my most profound and simple, simplest, sim, the one of the most profound and simple practices uh, I've ever done in my life. And I'm, I'm in it for life. Like every day to the day I die, I will sit in silence for 15 to 30 minutes every single day. And, uh, oh man, I had like a big revelation to share here and it just slipped out of my mind. We like can it come right fish. back to it. We'll circle, circle back around to that. Um, like when you meditate, is it more like the transcendental type where you're trying to empty yourself or do you try to fill yourself up with something? I even feel like even that's too complicated. I literally sit and I anchor myself with either paying attention to my breathing, sometimes a settling sound of some kind, but nothing more complicated than a hum. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I'm not like repeating like, you know, mantras written in Sanskrit. Right, right. Um, and I just watch my thoughts and I do every thing I can to just notice what these thoughts are. And when, when I see that I've gotten swept away in some fictional drama in my head, I bring my attention back to my breath. Okay. Or that settling sound or whatever it is. That's interesting. Cause you know, I, I hear a lot of people talking about meditation and then like in my world, you know, it's about trying to f- fill it. Like you meditate on scripture or, not not mantras, but meditate. I mean, there, there's a certain scripture. It's like what, whatever things are good, noble, pure, just think on these things. Or one translation says meditate on these things. Yeah. In in the very evangelical world, they they hear the word meditate and you know centering and all that stuff, and they're like, ooh, you know, hipty dipty and and stuff like that. And they're like, well, you should meditate on the word of God. And I'm like, well, which is good thing. It's you know, there are good things in there. And if what you're doing is paying attention to your thoughts, meditating on whatever things are pure, whatever things are good, whatever things are just, whatever things are holy, full of good report, these things, it's the same thing. It really is. You're just not, you know, meditating on a specific, like, big chunk of prose, you know, which to me, that's hard sometimes. I think I maybe can go like two minutes, maybe three minutes at this point in place. Um, it's it's a muscle for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, I read a great book called Why Buddhism is True. I mm-hmm. think it's called by a guy named Robert Wright. And he talks a lot about the neuroscience, like the science that's emerging to back up meditation. And, and I think you and I are sort of thinking of meditation in different terms, where <clears throat> whereas the, the meditation you're sort of speaking into is sort of a focusing on something yeah. single-mindedly for a long period of time to unpack some meaning. Mm-hmm. And the meditation, the way I experience meditation is clearing your mind as much as possible. It's, it is impossible to clear your mind for longer than a few minutes yeah. at the most. You're a guru yogi master if you can clear your mind for more than like three minutes at a time. But what I think that does and what the neuroscience is showing is that it is that clearing of them of the thoughts just mm-hmm. we're not even clearing like after a few minutes you, you, your mind just settles it settles into a deeper state and the brain waves change and it's I think, I think he calls it the default mode network in that book and it's in that space 
that your brain, your subconscious becomes very active connecting the dots from all the disparate information you've taken in throughout not only the day, but the week, the month, your life. And so there's a lot that goes on when you give yourself the gift of just sort of doing nothing and having that framework to say like, okay, there's a thought I'm thinking, okay, that's anxiety. It's unpleasant. I'm going to let that go and come back to my breath. The more you do that, the more things start to make sense. I mean, if, if you look at some of the neuroscience and I'm, I'm a little bit of a geek about this stuff, literally like reality is, is doesn't exist. Our, what 99% of what we experience every day is a fiction constructed by our brains to com- to basically connect two pieces of disparate information that came in at around the same time that our brain cannot process <laughs> because I have thing A that happened over here and thing B that happened over here. That happened milliseconds apart, but I have no way to make sense of them. So I'm going to just make up something to connect them to keep the thinking mind sane. And so literally like this conversation, half of it, we, it, it, it doesn't exist. You and I have completely different recollections of everything I've just said and everything you've just said. Oh, most likely. It's, it's a trip when you really look at, at what's happening. And the default mode network is what gets activated when this meditation thing happens. Well, that was part number two, and we have enough conversation for part number three. So look for that coming up next week. All right.